I was born in 1948. So if you do the math, that makes me 75 um, in October. And in 1988, I was 40. I'm a mathematician, you can tell. And uh, a significant event happened in 1988. Everybody got crazy about the rapture. And there was a book published called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And so it was everywhere. And I read it, and I actually got kind of excited at reading the book. I thought, wow, look at this, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 98, uh, 1988. And they all seemed fairly uh, persuasive. And so I got fairly excited. Well, next thing you know, it was 1989. We were all still here. So I thought, darn. Uh, and uh, so I, I decided, I'm going to figure out when he's coming back. I decided that he's coming back in... Um, when I'm 80, five more years on my birthday. And so you got to put up with what's going on five more years. You know, with all the stuff going on over in Israel, if you go on the internet, there is so much stuff about the return of Jesus. There is, uh, what my dad used to call more stupid per square inch than you can shake a stick at. And, uh, anyway, there's, there's a whole bunch of, uh, it was, entertaining to read it actually to see all the things that are said in second peter we're in second uh, peter going through it we're going to we went through uh, verses one and two a couple of weeks ago so i'll start at verse three know this first of all and so whenever you see that that means this is pretty important know this first of all this is right up there at the top that in the last days now i don't know when jesus is coming back but i'm I'm pretty confident that we're in the last days. We're getting close to the end. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continued just as it was from the beginning of creation. When they maintained this, it escaped their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And so he's saying people to, uh, during Peter's time, saying, uh, ah, it isn't going to happen. It's just going to keep on going the way it's always been going. And uh, God's not going to mess uh, with us. And he said, well, they forget that God at one point in the past killed everybody with a flood, except for a few people um, being flooded with water. By, uh, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being preserved for fire reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The day of judgment. The day of judgment, that's a a significant day coming. The day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I'm going to take my hearing aids out. They kind of fight with the sound system. uh, I'll be able to hear myself even without my hearing aids. And you can hear me because of this. (laughs) All right. We're going to look at the last statement in this passage. Not wishing, this is God, not wishing, not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so God hasn't come because he's uh, just a few more, just a few more, just a few more. He's not wishing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. And so there's been what you might call a bit of a delay as God's patience is waiting for people to come to him, to come to Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Number one in your notes, heaven and hell are very real places, and, very, and every person who has lived or will live will spend eternity in one place or the other. So we could have a cup of coffee together, and I could start the conversation by saying, tell me about your most painful experience that you can think of. Uh, I mean, I've smashed my thumb with a hammer. That hurt. Uh, I've fallen off of ladders up in the airways. That really hurt. 
But I think the most painful experience I ever had was we took a youth bunch of high school kids camping, and it, was, it started raining. So we put up a tarp, and I got up on this log to tie the tarp off, and the log gave out from under me, and I fell, and I fell into the fire. Both hands, right into the hot coals. And it burned all the skin off my hands, and that really hurt. I don't think I've had an experience in my life that hurt as much as that one did. That was incredibly painful. Now, I've been hurt, had pain, and I can't imagine what it would be like to experience that forever with no end in sight, no parole, um, no vacations, no coffee breaks. Hell is a real place, and a lot of people are going to be there forever and ever and ever. Revelation 19.20, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And so, you know, those dudes are bad dudes. The false prophet and the beast, they're thrown into the lake of fire forever. Good. No problem there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They will be tormented day and night. The beast, the false prophet, the antichrist, the devil, they're in the lake of fire. Hallelujah. Good. Let them burn. And then moving on to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the, in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the same place. The devil, the Antichrist, uh, and the beast are tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever. To be written in the Lamb's book of life means you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You're born again. <clears throat> born again, adopted into the family of God. Luke 16 now the poor man died, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died, was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. I remember falling into that fire uh, and the pain that I had. For days and days and days because of that uh, burn that I had. And this dude is in the fire uh, in agony. Psalms 88, 4 through 9 is a sort of a prophecy of the, uh, of the pit. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. Whom you, speaking of God, remember no more. They are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places. In the depths your wrath has rested upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. You have, you have removed my acquaintances far from me. I was talking with a guy one time. He says, I'm looking forward to hell. I said, really? All my friends are there. And I thought, you, you planning on playing poker with them? And, and having a party while you're there with all your buddies. It says, you have removed my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an object of loathing to them. I'm shut up and cannot go out. My eyes wasted away because of affliction. Number two, living beings created by God in his image can't simply cease to exist as they, uh, to exist. They are eternal. Now, one of the things I have said periodically that always gets me in really big trouble with a few people, mostly ladies, 
is I don't think dogs have a soul. I don't think cows have a soul or goats or sheep or pigs or cats. No matter how you know, nice, cuzzy, fuzzy pets. You know, when they die, they turn to fertilizer. And they no longer exist because they don't have a soul, don't have an eternal part. We were created, me, you, every person, in the image and likeness of God, by God. And the very nature of being created in his image makes us eternal in the sense of the fact that we don't cease to exist. I've talked to quite a few people who tend to think that if a person's not a believer when they die, they just cease to exist. They just turn into dirt. And that's the end of them. No memory, no nothing. Uh, that uh, awareness that they've ever existed. Number three, God's desire is that every person becomes a member of his family and live with him forever. When he started the whole plan, when he created Adam and Eve, created the world, his plan was that people would live with him, uh, inhabit heaven with him. But because uh, he wanted people to fellowship with him, to love him, uh, required that we were given uh, free choice. There can't be love without free choice. And so that freedom to choose... People have chosen not to love Jesus, not to follow him, not to believe in him. Second Peter 3, 9 again. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then 1 Timothy Paul writing to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 3 said, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, who desires all men to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God, one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So he's not willing that any perish. He desires that all would come to him, that everyone would be saved. Number four, God has given the responsibility of winning the lost to the church. people get their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life by choosing to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, by choosing to follow him, by choosing to love him. A choice that is made on the basis of information they receive. A choice they make on the basis of the gospel and the content of the gospel, the good news. And they want to be forgiven, adopted, live in heaven, so they choose to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ. That's a choice that people make. Now, they can't make that choice without information, without the gospel. And I've been given the responsibility, you have as well, to share that gospel with people who are not believers. Um, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. That's an assignment that we've been given. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, again, we've been commissioned. We've been sent. Go. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Number five, God has given the responsibility of reaching the lost to each one of us. So, people in the church like the idea of, yeah, it's been given to the church. That means it's the pastor's job. He's the pastor. He's the one that preaches. He's the one that shares the gospel. And so, uh, I'm off the hook because I'm a welder. I'm off the hook because I'm a farmer. I'm off the hook because whatever. That's the pastor's job. And... Uh, It's your job given to you by God. I have a a goal in my goal setting. That is, every year when I write my goals, this year I have 76 goals, is to write a goal to do something I've never done before and to learn something I've never learned before. Every year I try to think, okay, what am I going to do this year that I've never done before? I remember one year I learned how to make soap. And I made soap. My girls loved my soap. Uh, It had 
oatmeal in it and it had goat's milk in it and it had honey in it. So if it didn't make you clean, you could eat it. <laughs> Actually, I still have some left from my soap making days. I, I, I bought some bees and I, I had a couple of hives of bees for several years. I learned how to be a beekeeper and uh, I learned how to weld and I learned how to paint cars. And every year, okay, what am I going to learn to do this year that I've never learned before? I'm going to do something I've never done, go someplace I've never been. And so I'm always pondering and thinking about what that would be. Um, I have never operated on a person. <laughs> Who would like to volunteer? <laughs> I think I, I, I'm going to pass on that one, I think. I was, at, uh, I was in Sierra Leone, West Africa, on one of our missions trips. And uh, there was a team over there that were doing dental work from the States. They don't have any dentist over there and everybody's teeth. And one of the guys said, you want to pull a tooth out? It's real easy. This guy needs to have a tooth pulled out. I said, uh, I'll watch. I've never put that on my goals to learn how to do or to experience to pull somebody's tooth out. I don't, it just doesn't really appeal to me to pull out a tooth. So, I will never pull out your tooth. I will never do surgery on you. Uh, I don't think I will ever fly an airplane, especially if somebody else is in the plane besides me. It's not on my list of things to do. Did you know that there's a whole lot of people who have never, ever led anybody to Jesus? People that are in their 50s and 60s, been Christians for 20, 30 years, never once had the joy of sharing the gospel and leading someone to faith in Christ. Never happened in their entire life. And it doesn't really bother them. I would guess that probably three quarters of the people that are in our church, that's a pretty high number. I would guess probably on the conservative side, at least three quarters, never ever have led anybody to Jesus. Which isn't uh, as bad as if I would say have never even attempted, never even shared, never tried to influence a person towards Jesus. Very, very few Christians really take that very seriously. In their walk uh, with Christ. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's about as easy as it gets. For with the heart a person believes. Resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses. Resulting in salvation. The scripture says. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That word preacher doesn't mean uh, pastor in the pulpit, official. It's somebody that just verbally shares the gospel with another person. How can they hear unless someone tells them? And shares with them the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Reconciled us to himself. That means it took away all the barriers between us and God. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's you. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He has given us that responsibility of sharing the word, the gospel, to people who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's who we are. That's my job. That's your job. That's our assignment from Jesus to be an ambassador for him, to influence people. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you know, I don't put cream in my coffee. Do you know why? I think I've told you this. Because my dad said, if you put cream in your coffee, you are a girl. (laughs) Now, I like girls. I had six girls. My wife is one. But I don't want to be one. So I'm not putting cream in my coffee. 
That's the choice I have. When I go and they, the lady says, coffee? I say, yeah. You want cream? No, thank you. My wife puts three quarters of the cup as cream. She has a little coffee with her cream. So we can choose. Cream with your coffee? No. Yes. It's your choice. Did you know the average Christian thinks that witnessing is kind of like having cream in your coffee? Yeah, we can do it if we want. But if we don't want, that's no big deal. We don't have to. You can have cream and coffee or not. You can witness or not. It's sort of, yeah, if it works out, if it's kind of in your thing, if it's part of your personality, uh, fine. Otherwise, there's somebody that'll come along that'll take care of it, that'll take up the slack. Acts chapter 20, uh, number uh, number 6. There, there does appear to be a reward and consequence built into our calling of being a faithful ambassador for Jesus. So, life is like having a garden. If you plant a tomato seed, you're going to get a tomato plant. If you plant a corn seed, you're going to get a corn plant. If you get a plant a bean seed, you're going to get a bean plant. That's just life. That's law. That's the way it works. Life is like that. God said, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. In other words, life has rewards and consequences. You either harvest corn or you harvest weeds, depending on what you planted. All of life is like that. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not consider my life as any account as dear to myself, this is Paul speaking, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. I may finish my course and... The ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul says, that's what I was given, this ministry from God, to solemnly testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Paul was pretty sure his life was not going to last much longer. Therefore, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. What's that? What's he saying there? I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Does he have a message there that he's trying to convey? In Acts 18, he says the same thing. But when they resisted and blasphemed, this is the the Jews when he was preaching the gospel to them. uh, He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. Now on, I will go to the Gentiles. What's he saying? Uh, Paul's a Jew. He knew the law and probably referring to a passage in the book of Ezekiel. And God speaking to Ezekiel. Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away his blood will be on his own head he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning his blood will be on himself but had he taken warning he would have delivered his life but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and a sword comes and takes away takes a person from them he is taken away in his iniquity his blood I will require from the watchman's hand now as for you son of man God speaking to Ezekiel I have appointed you a watchman I have given you a job for the house of Israel so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you, do not, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man will shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn, a, turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. That's obviously a consequence for failing Ezekiel to do what God called him to do, and that was to warn people about their life, their lifestyle, their choices, and what would come into their life because of it. And so when Paul says to the people that he's talking to, I've been faithful, I've preached the gospel to everyone, 
And I'm free from the blood of any individual. That is them failing to enter heaven because they didn't hear the gospel from me. Paul said I was responsible. Number seven. I think occasionally somebody will come up to me and say, Pastor D, I have a question. I know what that means. Uh, And if you said that, I'm not trying to intimidate or anything. But often people listening to what I preach and teach will disagree with what I say. That's great. Uh, It would probably be easier if if they walk up and say, Pastor D, I don't really agree with what you said. Oh, okay. But we're, we're nice to each other. And so instead you'll come up and say, I have a question. All right. And so the question is worded in such a way that I can... I can get the drift, and I have no problem with that, really. And so, statements that I think might prompt some, I have a question. I start out with two words. I think. This is what I think. It's my opinion. I believe it's true. But, you know, if you don't, I'll still take you fishing. Uh, I think that the reward or consequence for being or failing to be a faithful witness for Jesus will show up at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to all stand before Jesus at the end of our life and give an account of our life. And I believe that we will be rewarded or suffer the loss of rewards on the basis of doing little witnessing. And in this life, in the way of blessings from God, John 4, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? It's like, all right, we don't need to witness just yet because Jesus isn't coming back for a while. Don't you say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields that they're white for harvest. Now, already he who reaps is receiving wages. What's that? Wages. That's money. That's reward. That's blessing. He who reaps, that is, he who shares the gospel and brings people into the family of God, is receiving wages, is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. You became a believer. You got adopted into the family of God because I, Paul, and Apollos shared the gospel with you. You heard it and trusted in Christ, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants, he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, to what he has done as a witness for Christ. So, sometimes when I hire my grandkids, I'll ask them. So, what do you think? Based on what you did this afternoon, how much should I give you, pay you? What did you accomplish that's worth me giving you money for? I do that sort of to help train them on what diligence is and what work is and what accomplishment is and sometimes they will say well grandpa I got distracted I didn't stack any wood but I will next time cool okay next time I'll pay you so thinking back a day a week a month a year if God rewards us for being an ambassador for him that shares, influences people. How are we going to do? How much recompense, reward will we receive in life and at the judgment seat of Christ? Number eight, a major reward in this life for faithfulness as a witness for Jesus is power. Power. I hear people all the time say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then I think, boy, oh boy, you aren't really doing much. I remember one time coming home uh, back a number of years ago, pastor, and I said to Patty, oh, did you know that there are a lot of wimpy Christians in our church? She says, 
Are we? I said, well, sometimes I wonder about you. No, I didn't say that. You knew I didn't, didn't you? You thought, you're not that stupid, yeah. So you're a believer in Jesus Christ, so doesn't that guarantee that you're going to have the power of God working in your life? You're in his family, you've confessed Christ, you come to church, you read the Bible. Aren't you going to have power to live the way Jesus wants you to live, to overcome sin, to bear up under problems and pressures? You'll be going to be a, a strong person. Let me read to you Acts 1.8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So those go together. Why was the Holy Spirit given to me, given to you? Why was power given to us so that we could be a witness? So if you have a nice car, a Corvette with a 500 horsepower engine in it, and you don't turn the key on, you're going to have to get some friends to push you. Because you've got a fine car with a great engine, but it's not running. If you choose not to witness, you have zero power. You have zero power. You can talk about it. You can talk about the Holy Spirit. You can talk all you want about how much you can do for Jesus. You have no power if you don't choose to be a witness. The Spirit of God was given to us to be a witness for him. And when we choose to witness, the key's on, the engine's on, the power is alive, working in and through us. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The presence of Christ, the power of Christ, the guidance of Christ, everything we need. But it's when we do what he's called us to do that that happens and takes place. Another major reward is increased opportunities or open doors. So when you take a little bitty step of obedience in the direction of being a witness for Jesus, you say, I'm going to be a witness. I mean, you just take a baby step, just a little teensy step. You will be rewarded with power and with more opportunities. I used to sell stuff when I was a freshman and sophomore in college. And even when I was a junior, after I was married, because I couldn't find any other jobs to do, I sold knives, I sold uh, vacuum cleaners, and I sold books. I hated those jobs. But do you know the cool thing about selling the books? Whenever I went to sell them, somebody had called them and made an appointment. So it wasn't like, who are you? We had an appointment. And they knew what the appointment was about. And it was relatively easy to talk to people about my books if they knew I was coming and they actually arranged for the appointment. Do you know how much easier it is to be a witness for Jesus when he arranges an appointment and opens the door? It's like a piece of cake. Colossians 4, 3, praying at the same time for us that God will open up to us the door for the word, that God, God will open up. He does that. That he will open up to us a, a, a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Colossians 4, 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, that's unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity. Making the most of the opportunity. And so when you look, look, pay attention, get up in the morning and say, Jesus, I don't know what today is bringing, but I'm going to pay attention and look for any little opening to share, to talk, to make a comment. I'm just, I'm not going to be obnoxious or weird. I'm just going to pay attention to any open door that you might provide for me today. Now, if we're faithful to step through uh, one door, he'll give us two and he'll give us more and he'll provide appointments. But we have to look for those opportunities. When I was in, uh, Patty and I drove over to Idaho, my son Seth lives over there, his family, his wife and four kids, and, and then my son Sam drove over with his family as well, and it snowed on Thanksgiving Day, eight inches. Seth lives right at the start of the Sawtooth Mountains. It's full of deer, elk, uh, moose, I got moose there. 
So Sam and Seth and I got on in Sam's car, put it in four-wheel drive because there was lots of snow. We drove up the road looking for deer. We pulled off. We got the spot and scope out. We put it up on the hillside. We saw over 200 deer. And we saw some elk. And we saw a moose. We were looking for them. Uh, And I raised those two boys right. When they were little, I paid them a quarter if they saw a deer while riding in the car. Now, the reason I did it is it kept them busy so they didn't tease their sisters. But it trained their brain. I can see deer and elk like, ah, it's amazing. When Sam was 10, I would take him hunting with a bunch of other guys from the church. Everybody wanted him to hunt with them because he could see elk when nobody else could. Because he learned how to spot them. I'm an ambassador for Jesus. He provides me divine appointments all day long. A little open door here, a little open there. But the average person doesn't look. Doesn't look. They're not interested. Acts 14, 27. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them. How he had opened a door. How he had opened a door. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me. 2 Corinthians 2.12, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me. Revelations 3.8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, giving me opportunities because I took advantage of what he did give me. Number 10, a great way to begin the journey of being a faithful witness for Jesus is through prayer. So the average Christian doesn't witness because they don't want to be thought weird. Uh, You know, you just don't want to push things in people. We don't want to carry. So we're just timid about that. But praying, you don't, that's like easy. I can pray. You can pray. We can pray by ourselves. We can pray with others. Uh, And that's the great way to take a little step in the direction of being a witness for Jesus. Take a little step and he gives you power. To take another step and another step and another step and he opens up doors and provides divine appointments. And so prayer is a great first step. First Timothy 2 again. First of all then, first of all, and this is super important, I urge, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time for this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. To pray. Most effective, most powerful thing we do for the lost is to pray for them. Romans 10.1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God... My prayer to God for them is their salvation. I'm going to jump to number 11. We can pray together with our church family. We can pray by ourselves. We can pray with our wife. There's a whole lot of options for praying. Acts 1.14. These, this is 120 people that... Uh, watched Jesus ascend into heaven and he told them to go wait in the upper room and, and these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus with his brothers there were 120 people praying for 10 days and then Peter stood up and preached and 3,000 people got saved because of that prayer meeting Acts 4.23, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, that is, they prayed, and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. There's more there of their praying. And then verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak the word of God with boldness. And 5,000 more people got saved. Number 12, we can witness as an individual all day long. We can witness with our church family. 
So I call that corporate evangelism. And so you can go to work, you can talk to your neighbor, and you can be a witness where you are as God provides divine appointments, but also we can do things together as the church family. Corporate evangelism, we can do witnessing together. And did you know that it's way easier and really quite fun? Back when I started pastoring in 1976, here at JBC, when we were up in the grade school gym, we, uh, we got money from the, our Conservative Baptist Association. They gave us $600 a month as a church plant. That was my salary. But I had to fill out these reports every month. And then every couple of months, I had to make a graph of our attendance. I had to count attendance every Sunday and put it on a paper and fill out the report, send it into the office if I was going to get this $600. And I remember when I did the very first one that had 12 months on it. And it was, you know, up and down and up and down attendance. And then there was one month that was a spike. April. Why the spike in April? Easter's in April. Wow. You know what we need to do? We need to have an Easter every month. That was like this great revelation I had. Now, we can't have an Easter every month because Easter's only once a year, but we could have something like Easter. And so what we started was outreach events. And we didn't do one every month. We did one four times a year. And so before the outreach event, I would preach a sermon on evangelism. Kind of what I'm doing tonight. And I'd also preach a sermon on the power of prayer. Kind of what I'm doing tonight. And I'd say, we're going to have a prayer time for this outreach event. And during the prayer time, we're going to pray for your lost friends that you're going to invite to the outreach event. We're going to pray for them that they say yes when you invite them. And when they come, we're going to pray that God opens their heart and they, <clears throat> and they hear whatever and plant seeds and they'll come back. And so... Every three months, I'd preach a sermon on evangelism, I'd preach a sermon on prayer, and we would have an outreach event, and people would invite their friends, and every <clears throat> we had Christmas and Easter, they were built in, and then we had two others besides that. There were almost always a music event. We'd invite Brent Lamb and uh, uh, Brothers Keeper and different music groups that were cheap but could sing well. And so we would schedule the event and we'd have a prayer time and tell everybody, invite your friends and then come to the thing. And so that was our outreach strategy. Um, and it worked. It worked quite well. Number 14, when you pray for your lost friends, so you got five fingers in each hand. I'm over time, so I'm going to go really fast on this. You got five fingers in each hand. This hand represents your lost friends, neighbors, relatives, people you work with. This hand represents you and me, us, the church. And so we're going to put our hands together and we're going to pray. So there's five, five. Uh, we're going to pray for lost friends. First, you're going to pray that God will convict them of their sin. You can't save somebody that doesn't think they're lost. So we're going to pray that God will make, the way I pray it, when I pray for my lost friends, I pray that God will make them feel like dirt. That they just know down the core of their being, I'm going to hell. As the Spirit of God works in their life. John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, Jesus speaking, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin. Now it's pretty obvious the world is not getting convicted of sin. So, why isn't the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin? He convicts those I pray for. He convicts those that you pray for. Be that God will open their eyes. That God will open their eyes, spiritual eyes. Now, when Jesus was here as a man walking around, he healed blind people. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds Blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. Lost people don't get it. That doesn't make any sense to them. So we'll pray that God will open their spiritual eyes so they can understand the gospel. 
Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a prophecy concerning Jesus that he quoted concerning himself. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind. Third thing we're going to pray for lost people is that God will set them free. The devil has a chain around their neck. If you say, hey, you want to come to uh, our Christmas concert? They can't. The old devil's got a chain around their neck. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. <clears throat> Every lost person is in captivity. The devil controls their life. Second Timothy two twenty six that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. <clears throat> they can't see, they can't understand, they can't respond. And so when we pray that Jesus would set the captives free, they give sight to the blind, that's a prayer that he will answer. And the fourth thing is that God will draw them like a magnet. A lot of people who are adults, when you say, well, tell, share me, tell me your story about how you became a believer. And often they'll tell the story about being in a service, uh, whatever, and they just felt this pull. This, uh, just something drew them. And that's God working. In fact, Jesus says in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And number five, that God will give them faith. That God will give them faith. That is, they can't really believe without faith. And nobody has faith naturally. It's given to us by God. So I'm going to pray five things. You remember them, maybe? You can start from the back. You can remember the last one first, best, huh? Faith, yeah, I can remember faith. Oh, that they can see, that they're set free, that God draws them. What was that fifth one? I forgot. Yeah, you got it. And then when we come to praying for me, for you, for each other, 15, when you pray for yourself and our church, <clears throat> that God would thrust us into the harvest. I'm going to fast during the five days of prayer that starts Monday. I'm going to pray a fast Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now, you know what uh, Saturday is going to be? I am going to eat because I am going to be starved to death. I'm going to have this urge, this drive, this compulsion, this, mm, it's going to consume me. We need to pray for each other that we would have that when it comes to being a witness for Jesus. Luke 10, 2, he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. How does he do that? By giving us this, uh, this desire, this passion. Second thing, that God will give opportunities, divine appointments. And he does that when we pray. He provides open doors, divine appointments. Colossians 4.3, praying. Paul's telling us what to pray about. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word. Praying for each other that God will open up doors, grant opportunities. Third thing, that God would open our eyes to see those opportunities. That we wouldn't walk right by an opportunity to, to influence a person without seeing it. And again, Jesus in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? You procrastinators. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look. And you'll see those open doors and opportunities. D, that God will give us boldness. I have never, ever had anybody hit me when I talked to them about Jesus. Never even saw anybody flinched, I mean, start to do it. I've never even had anybody yell at me. 
but were timid about it anyway. Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak the word of God with boldness. E, that God will give us the right words. Several times I've had people call and say, Pastor, I'm sitting in a restaurant with a friend and he wants to become a Christian. Can you uh, talk to him on the phone? <laughs> Why don't you? Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know. I don't want to mess it up. Acts 4.30, uh, uh, Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul was requesting prayer for himself. Now, do you know the cool thing about this sermon? Five days of prayer starts Monday. And we're going to pray specifically for our Christmas concert as an outreach event that you all are inviting your friends to. We're going to pray that you will indeed do that. And in fact, we've been passing out these cards for you to write down names of people that you live next door to, you're related to, uh, that you work with. Uh, that you don't like, but they don't go to church anywhere, and they live close enough to come to church here. You write their names down, be in the upper room when we're praying there, and we'll pray for those people that God will do those five things to them. We'll pray for us that he'll work in us on those five things. And we've got the combination of a great music and nice, friendly people who will greet people and make them feel welcome. I'm going to preach a 10-minute sermon, best 10-minute sermon I've ever preached in my life, the gospel. I mean, it's a... Mm, perfect storm but if you are apathetic and lukewarm and lazy and don't pray and don't invite it doesn't work and so I just want to encourage you don't be apathetic lukewarm and lazy don't just willingly sit by while people go to hell for eternity It's our calling, our responsibility. And so this is a great way to do evangelism because you don't have to, I mean, you're just praying and then inviting. How easy is that? And it works. Works quite well. But if you don't do anything, it won't. So just make the choice to do something, to be involved, to be part of the plan, the strategy that we our church does together in unity. God blesses unity. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for giving us our salvation. We're going to live with you in heaven with glorified bodies. We're going to experience amazing joy and beauty forever and ever and ever. But as we live this life, we now live in the midst of a world that's decaying and sinning and going to hell as a whole. And we have a responsibility calling from you to be ambassadors And I pray that you will use us, thrust us into the harvest, compel us, give us a drive. And I pray that together as the church, we would um, work at reaching people and that we would pray faithfully and diligently. The Lord, motivate us, stir us up, give us a desire to be used by you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.